Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We are going through the events of that first Resurrection Sunday. We're talking about the appearances of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. He appeared to the women, the group of women. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and that's what we're going to talk about here. He also appeared to Simon Peter. Also, we'll talk about that in the next audio. But in this audio, we're talking about these two disciples who are walking on the road out of Jerusalem to Emmaus. Emmaus was a village about seven miles from Jerusalem. According to BibleAtlas.org, it was due west of Jerusalem. But they've got a question mark there because they don't know exactly where it was. There are only two parallel passages here. Mark only has two verses in Mark 16, 12, and 13. Most of the account of the disciples on the road to Emmaus is in Luke 24, verses 13 through 32. So we'll spend most of our time there. Now, who were these two disciples? One was named Cleophas in in Luke 24, verse 18. Cleophas is explicitly named. The one named Cleophas answered him, answered Jesus. So we know one was named Cleophas. Cleophas also has another name, Alphaeus. According to John Gill, the other one, we don't know who he is. There's people speculate. Some people speculate Simon Peter. Some people speculate Nathaniel, maybe Luke. Nobody knows. So I'm just going to call him the other unnamed disciple. Now, they were going to Emmaus, but after Jesus appeared to them and convinced them that he was the resurrected Lord, they turned around and went back into Jerusalem. So we need to remember that the Two disciples, along with Jesus, traveled in two different directions. Before the revelation of who Jesus was, they were going to Emmaus. After the revelation of who Jesus was, they went back east towards Jerusalem and into the city to talk to the apostles who were gathered there that Sunday night. Now we'll notice in Mark 12, verse 13, Mark says this, And they went, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, went and reported it to the rest. That means the rest of the disciples who did not believe them either. And I assume that there are two groups of people who didn't believe Jesus. First of all, it was the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They didn't recognize him at first. Now, later they did. So I'm assuming it's, it, it's referring to at first the two disciples didn't believe. And then later the apostles gathered together in Jerusalem. They didn't believe either. As Adam Clark says, quote, Never were there a people so difficult to be persuaded of the truth of spiritual things as the disciples. But... To be fair to them, that's that's a big piece of meat to chew. Jesus rose again from the dead. People don't usually rise again from the dead. So it was a little hard for me. Jesus spent all of that day going around appearing to people to convince them, yes, I really am risen from the dead. Now, this unbelief of the Gospels is a strong proof of the truth of the Gospel, as Adam Clark said, because they were so skeptical, the disciples were so skeptical of the resurrection, it took a lot of proof to convince them of the resurrection, and because... They were convinced that shows that the evidence for the revelation is powerfully strong. Now let's turn to the parallel passage in Luke chapter 24. We're going to go all the way to from verse 13 to verse 32, starting with verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. Now that same day, that Sunday afternoon, two of them, this the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus. And, of course, we've already said that one of them was named Cleophas, also known as Alphaeus. The other one is not known. Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, and according to the map, about seven miles to the west of Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. Verse 15, And while they were discussing and arguing, 
Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them, but they were prevented from recognizing him. Before we talk about what they were arguing about, let's discuss why Jesus was prevented, or why the disciples were, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, why were they prevented from recognizing Jesus? Here's some options. First of all, it was by special divine intervention. Second of all, perhaps it was because they just were so grief-stricken they didn't notice who they were looking at. Now, I find that hard to believe. Most people say it's because of special divine intervention, according to the NIV Study Bible. In fact, Mark 16, verse 12, which I just read and didn't, point, and didn't stop to point it out as I went through, we see that Jesus appeared in a different form to these two disciples. Let me read that, Mark 16, verse 12. Then after this, he appeared in a different form, in a different form to two of them, walking to them, walking on their way into the country, a different form. So for some reason, he changed appearance for the disciples. Now the question is, is why would he do that? Why would he want to hide who he was? Here's two options. First of all, by hiding himself, this would force the disciples to think through how the crucifixion and all the events surrounding it, how that crucifixion fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Now we're going to read in just a little bit that Jesus took the Moses and the prophets, the scriptures, and he explained to them how he fulfilled that. And by doing that, this made the scripture more real. It made the disciples believe more thoroughly. There's a lot of good stuff that happened from that. Now, if Jesus had just appeared all of a sudden and the two disciples recognized him immediately, they wouldn't have been in a frame of mind to sit down and have a Bible study on fulfilled prophecy. They would have just been so happy and so forth. But Jesus hid himself so he could, he could, he could let them see how scripture was fulfilled. This, by the way, I got from that well-known website, gotquestions.org. Also, another reason he might have hidden who he was, it would enhance the joy that they would have when they finally discovered who he, who he, he indeed was. Because they're walking along, walking along, getting to know this guy. All of a sudden, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. That, that's pretty dramatic. It would, it would enhance their joy, I think, as, as opposed to if he just revealed himself suddenly like, like he did to Mary Magdalene, perhaps. But at any rate, I don't think there's any question he did hide himself. Now, let's go to the question of what they were arguing about on the road to Emmaus. Here's three options. They could have been arguing about, was Jesus the Messiah or was he not? This is according to the Barnes commentary. They could have been arguing, did the resurrection occur or did it not? We read that in verse 23 that, the, that they mentioned the testimony of the women that Jesus had been raised but they weren't sure whether that testimony was reliable or not. So they could have been arguing about, were the women correct? Was Jesus really raised? Or did somebody steal the body? Or they could have been arguing about, gosh, what are we going to do now that Jesus is dead? Are we going to spread the news of the kingdom when Jesus is dead? What are we going to do moving forward? Chapter 24 of Luke, verses 17 through 18. Then he, Jesus, asked them, what is this dispute that you're that you are having with each other as you are walking. And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened here in these days? There were lots of visitors there in Jerusalem because it was Passover, if you recall, when Jesus was crucified. The population, I think, swelled from 50,000 to 250,000. I think I read a number like that somewhere. There's a lot of people in Jerusalem. Luke chapter 24, verses 19 through 24. What things he, Jesus, asked them? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, 
and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. All right, let's first of all point out that the two disciples told Jesus that Jesus the Nazarene was a prophet. Now, they had respect for Jesus as a man of God by calling him a prophet, as my NIV study Bible points out. However, because Jesus had died, they apparently were reluctant to call him Messiah, as the NIV study Bible also points out. So... They've been kicked back on their heels by this crucifixion. He's a prophet. He was powerful in action and speech, but he's dead now because the chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death. In verse 20, the disciples were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Now, what does that mean, redeem Israel? Does that have spiritual implications or political implications? The NIV Study Bible says that redeem Israel, what they meant by that was to set the nation free from bondage to Rome which would then usher in the kingdom of God. Cleopas and his friend, if this is so, were still operating under, under the rabbinic concept of the Messiah, which is the messianic kingdom. The kingdom of God is a political kingdom. The people were longing for political redemption. Now, is that reasonable to think that that might be what Jesus' promised redemption of Israel might be? Well, here's some scriptures that show redemption, and I've always taken this as spiritual redemption, but I'm going to show you that it could be these scriptures could be taken as political redemption. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. This is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, speaking. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. Does that mean redemption from the Roman Empire or spiritual redemption? I've always taken it to be spiritual redemption. But it could be political redemption. Luke 2, verse 38. At that very moment, the 84-year-old Anna came up and began to thank God and to speak to him speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. With all those people in Jerusalem listening to Anna, were they thinking about spiritual redemption or were they thinking about political redemption of Israel from the Roman Empire? I think the latter. They were thinking about political redemption, not spiritual redemption. Luke 21, verse 28, but when these things began to take begin to take place, stand up and lift up in your head, lift up your heads because your redemption is near. This is Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. And of course there he's talking about physical deliverance for Christians from the oppressive Jews during the Jewish war. That's the redemption that draws near that Luke was talking about. So redemption can be used in a political sense. I don't know how these two disciples took it. But they were hoping for something good from Jesus, either political or spiritual redemption. In Luke 2.38, when Anna speaks of the redemption of Jerusalem, she could have been saying the redemption of people who live in Jerusalem. You can take it that way, too. All right, and then the disciples, the two disciples, mention the third day. They say in verse 21, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. What did they mean? Why did they bring up the third day? Jesus was killed on Friday, then we got, that's day one, Saturday's day two, and Sunday, where they are now, is day three. Here's three options as to what they could be referring to. The Jews believe that after the third day, the soul left the body. This is the NIV Study Bible suggestion. If that's so, the disciples would be thinking that Jesus had passed the point of returning to his body. And so they're saying, hey, this is the third day. Jesus said he was going to be raised again. 
but we don't see him, and that means it's too late. Once three days have gone by, he's gone. And that's why we're arguing. We're saying if he's resurrected, where is he? Third day, he's gone. Well, that's one option for third day. Another option about the third day is it's refer they are referring to the fact that Jesus had predicted he was going to be raised on the third day, and they're looking for him. They say, well, he said he was going to be raised on the third day. Well, where is he? Luke 9:22 saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. And that's just an example verse of many verses that say that Jesus is going to rise again on the third day. Now, to me, this is what they were talking about. I think, in my opinion, this is the more likely option. It seems to me those two disciples were hoping against hope that the resurrection just might be true. John Gill agrees. He says, quote, they were not altogether without hope since there was a report of his being raised from the dead. But what credit was to be given that, they could not see. So these guys are hoping against hope that those ladies were, were, ladies were right, that the tomb was empty and Jesus had been resurrected. It could be that the two disciples are putting a little bit of reproach or reproof on the stranger walking with them. In other words, quote, It has been three whole days since the remarkable events, and you still don't know? After three days, you don't know what's happened in Jerusalem? So when they say, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. And you don't know that yet? Well, that could be that. I don't think it is, but it could be. Verse 24 mentions some of those who were with us, with these two disciples. Who were they? Well, those were all of the early apostles. Those who were with us, and some of those who were with us is Peter and John, two of the apostles who went to the tomb and found it empty separately from the rest of the apostles. I give you the verses that tell us this, John 20, verses 3 through 4, at that Peter and the other disciple, that's John, went out heading for the tomb, Luke 24, verse 12. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. Well, there's Peter mentioned, uh, that's in Luke 24, verse 12. Luke mentions Peter, he doesn't mention John. John mentions both Peter and John. Now notice who was in, complicit in this crucifixion, in this unjust murder of Jesus. In verse 20, we, we read, and Jesus is speaking, uh, the, the disciples are speaking, and they said, And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. The chief priests and leaders, of course, priests are the ironic. The members of the Aaron's family who took care of the temple sacrifice, sacrificial system and the leaders were the political leaders in the Sanhedrin. They handed him over to be sentenced to death. Now, there's a lot of discussion on who killed Jesus. Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Well, it was both because the Jews handed over, as the scripture says here, handed over Jesus to the Romans. So they both were complicit in his murder. Now, we need to be careful to avoid anti-Semitism. The Jews refers to the Jewish leaders as a technical term, really. The Jewish leaders, the rulers, the Pharisees, not the whole Jewish race. After all, Jesus was Jewish, the disciples were Jewish, and there are a lot of Jews today that had nothing to do with Jesus' execution. So it's foolish as well as offensive to accuse them of doing something that they had nothing to do with. And, of course, the Romans were guilty, too. Now, there's a lot of times you hear people saying we're all guilty because we put Jesus on the cross. That is fuzzy thinking, but sure, we're all guilty. But it was specifically the Romans and the Jews who put Jesus on the cross. The Indonesians didn't do it. The Japanese didn't do it. And the Irish didn't do it. I think the reason people say that is they want, they're reacting against the charges of anti-Semitism. There's so many... Christians who blame Jews, all Jews, for the murder of Jesus instead of just the Jewish leaders, but that 
other Christians in reaction against this say, well, no, not only were the Jews not entirely responsible for the execution of Jesus, but they really had nothing to, not, not, they were not only not jointly responsible for the execution of Jesus, they really didn't have anything to do with it. And so they start fudging the issue by saying, we're all guilty, we're all guilty. It's kind of like when that congressman got up and said those, those blatantly anti-Semitic things against Israel, said that Jewish citizens in America had dual loyalty and that the only reason Israel did anything was because of the Benjamins, <laughs> meaning the, the $100 bills. And everybody got so upset, and so the Democratic majority in the House condemned all racism. But they wouldn't condemn specifically the anti-Semitic racism of this congressman. And so Christians are doing the same thing here. They say, well, you know, we're all guilty. Not just the Romans, not just the Jews. We're all, no, specifically it's the Romans and the Jews. And that makes a difference when you interpret the book of Revelation from an Orthodox preterist viewpoint because the sea beast is the Roman Empire and the land beast is the Jewish apostate kingdom. And that's the Jews and the Romans. And that fits right in with the whole theme of the book of Revelation. You, and you start fudging that. Well, then you fudge understanding of the apocalypse. Let's go to verse 25, 26, and 27. He, Jesus, said to them, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, How unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter, enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Now here's a good Bible study. How is Scripture fulfilled in the Messiah and with the Messiah teaching you that Bible study? That's the all-time best Bible study in the history of the church. You notice that the Messiah had to suffer those things. Why did the Messiah have to suffer? This is verse 26. Why was it necessary for him to suffer? Because the prophets prophesied that. And because God knows the future as well as the past, when he, when he enlightens a prophet to talk about the future, that means it's got to happen. Because if it doesn't happen, that means the prophet is false. And Jesus wasted his time trying to inspire the prophet. So it had to happen. What things did he suffer? Well, of course, we know he suffered on the cross and how horrible it was. But John Gill's got an excellent quote here about how he further suffered. Quote, or he was, quote, traduced as a sinful and wicked man and a friend and encourager of sinners as a man of immoral principles and practices as an idolater a blasphemer an impostor a seditious person as one that had had familiarity with the devil and did his miracles by his assistance with a load of other reproaches yeah he sure did suffer a lot he suffered a lot the slings and arrows of misfortune and the slanders of people who rejected their own Messiah. Now, Jesus took the Old Testament scriptures designated here as Moses and all the prophets. Moses is Torah, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And of course, all the prophets would be the major prophets and the minor prophets. I think also the writing prophets, which we call the historical books and all that. The writings are not mentioned, but of course, when you see the Hebrew scriptures referred to, as, for example, the law and the prophets, that refers to the whole Hebrew canon, the Old Testament canon. Moses and the prophets, the whole Hebrew canon. So that refers to the whole thing. Now you will notice that Jesus, before he starts explaining the scriptures to these two disciples, he sort of chastises them. He says, how unwise and slow you are. I think the NIV, yeah, the NIV says, how foolish you are. Was well, Jesus breaking his own command never to call somebody a fool? 
Matthew 5, verse 22, But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. Well, there's two different Greek words for fool here. The the Homer Christian Study Bible distinguishes them out in English by taking the milder one as fool and the, the more strict one, the more pejorative one, is moron. But you can see that Jesus is complaining about people who speak to their brother in anger with purposes of denigrating and slandering him. But that's not what Jesus is doing when he tells his disciples they're foolish. He's just trying to point out that they've got some work to do. He's not, do, he's not doing it from a heart of hatred, so he's not contradicting himself. Jesus calls them foolish in the NIV, unwise and slow in the Homer Christian Study Bible. He often expected his listeners to believe, and he often said things that showed that he expected them to believe. He often rebuked them for their lack of faith. For example, the phrase, oh, you have little faith, I looked it up one time. It occurs six times in the New Testament. Here's three examples on the Sermon on the Mount. You have little faith. Why are you worried about your daily provisions? His disciples come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They couldn't cast a demon out. And so he says, you have little faith. Peter was sinking after he walked on the water. Jesus grabs him and says, Peter, oh, you of little faith, which to me is amazing. If I'd have gotten out of a boat and walked on the water in the middle of the night, I would have expected a little bit of more encouragement than, oh, you of little faith, because Jesus expected the whole enchilada. He didn't expect Peter just to walk three quarters of the way. He expected Peter to walk all the way over to him. He expected faith, and he expected his listeners to understand the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. And I, I will say this, if you will, when you interpret the Old Testament prophets, if you will take them as pointing to the Messiah as Jesus here, pointed those Old Testament prophets to himself, the Messiah. If you will do that, you will avoid a lot of misinterpretation. But if you take the Old Testament prophets and say they're fulfilled in the future millennium, you're going to end up in nothing but speculative hogwash, in my humble opinion. Let's go to Luke chapter 24, verses 28 through 29. They came near the village where they were going. They're still going west now, heading toward Emmaus. They're somewhere in the middle there between Jerusalem and Emmaus. They came near a certain village, which is not named, in which no commentator I could find would speculate as to where that was. So it's just some unnamed village. And then, and then he gave the impression that he was going farther. Probably just started walking farther instead of stopping at the house, stopping in the village to go to the house. But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It's getting dark. Why don't you go stay? You don't need to be traveling. So they were very, very polite to Jesus. Now, if the two disciples had not invited him to the house where they were staying, which is probably a a friend's house, a, a disciple's house, if they had not invited him in, apparently he would have continued on. Jesus would have continued on by himself which shows how modest and civil and polite and prudent he was. Instead of barging in and said, I'd like to stay with you guys. The evening was coming. It would be inconvenient and unsafe for him to proceed to another village. And so the two disciples asked him to stay with them in this house. Verses 30 through 32 of Luke 24. It was as he reclined at the table, that's he, Jesus, reclined at the table with them that he, Jesus, took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. So they said to one each other, Weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Now remember, he, they were prevented from knowing who Jesus was, and now their eyes were opened, which implies that God just took the, the, the blinders off, if you will, and said, Okay, I'm going to let you recognize who you're talking to. It was Jesus. 
He disappeared from this site. That doesn't mean he vanishes like, like a spook. It means he left. As he left, of course, now they know who he was, and they say, well, weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road? In other words, that's why we love that Bible study so much, because we knew that Jesus fulfilled it, and he was right there with us. Now, there might have been a natural reason why they recognized Jesus. It doesn't say it could be supernatural. It could be because he broke bread, and that reminded them of the Lord's Supper. Even though this was a common family meal, it wasn't a Lord's Supper meal, the way he broke it, the way he talked, the way he took charge. You know, usually a guest doesn't take charge of the meal in a, in a host family, but Jesus did. So that breaking of the bread reminded them of the Lord's Supper. So now Jesus has finished his mission with the two. He rushed off, as we see here. He left. Once they were convinced, he left, because he, now he had two more witnesses. Now he's going to go look for some more witnesses. And these witnesses really believe because they knew that Jesus' appearance was in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. So now the two disciples on the road to Emmaus were loaded up both with scripture and eyewitness testimony. Now notice that Jesus, in convincing these two that he was indeed risen from the dead, he used both his personal testimony, the fact that he was there, and he used the scriptures. It's a false dichotomy to say we should use one or the other. Use them both. The disciples said their hearts were ablaze when they heard the scripture being taught to them. Here's some relevant passages. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. If I say I won't mention him or speak any longer in his name, says Jeremiah, his message becomes a fire burning in my heart, shut up in my bones. I become tired of holding it in, and I cannot prevail. Word of God is like a fire within. Psalm 39, verse 3. My heart grew hot within me as I mused. A fire burned. I spoke with my tongue. Hot to talk. So... Their recognition of who Jesus was explained the previous burning in their hearts as they were getting ready to teach. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. In our next audio, we will take up the report of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and the news of the appearance of Jesus' appearance to Simon Peter. We'll talk about how the two disciples went and reported to the apostles who were holed up in that house in Jerusalem. See you next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.